Welcome to Workers' Compensation Academy, your source for how to manage risk to improve your bottom line. This podcast series is created and produced by Weber Gallagher. Visit us at wglaw.com. This program should not be considered legal advice. Please consult our attorneys for your specific situation. And now, here are our hosts. Good morning. This is partner Rob Hanneman. I'm with my partner, Jennifer Labor. We're uh, having a podcast this morning with regards to um, an interesting topic that we think you'd like to listen to. We're going to cover why does defense counsel do what they do? It's a detailed look at what your counsel requires and uh, certain information that we need in order to defend the case on behalf of both the carrier and the client. Um, Jen and I have both uh, experienced workers' compensation attorneys, and we've been handling litigation for multiple years. We've come together today to discuss a topic that we feel is really important uh, for you to know why we do what we do. So I'm going to turn it over to Jen. She's going to cover some pre-litigation information that we like to have from our clients and carriers and why we need this information. Jen? Thanks, Rob. So we all know that when we get the file, there's certain information that we'll request from you. But uh, one of the things that we have found is that if you try and get certain information from an injured employee pre-litigation, it'll set you up for a better defense down the line. There's certain questions you can ask, certain information you can get that just puts you in a better position. And one of the things that we find uh, most often happens is as a company, you have a policy that you tell your employees what to do when an injury happens. But many times, the biggest problem we see is that when an injured employee comes to you and tells you about an accident, you don't report it to your carrier. And by not telling the carrier about the accident, the investigation that they can start beginning to do, uh, the discovery that they can ask of the injured employee, uh, the referral for medical treatment or evaluations, uh, it puts you at a disadvantage because additional information may be claimed later on, uh, the medical may be hindered if there's treatment not provided initially. So it's really important that you notify the carrier when you have an employee coming to you reporting an accident or injury. And if you're not sure if this is a workers' comp claim, still report it, let the carrier investigate it. That does not hurt you whatsoever. It actually helps you for them to be able to investigate it. Um, as an employer, you want to get any um, statements from the employee about the accident, have it in writing. If there's any witnesses, you want to get the information from witnesses from the employee right when the incident happens or when the allegations are being made. If it's a if someone tripped over something, if they cut themselves on something, whatever they may have done, if it's something where photos you feel may be necessary, it's taking the photos of the location. Um, it's having, if they were injured on a piece of equipment, having that addressed, it's getting whatever discovery may be necessary right away while it's still available. Get a specific description of how the employee claimed that they were injured, um, what exactly went on. But, you know, this pre-injury uh, information is really important and reporting it to the carrier so that the carrier can potentially get um, primary care records so that they can do investigation of um, witnesses that if they can go out and get more information. Um, Rob, do you, do you agree? Is there something else that you think that, that we're missing but or, or that you would recommend? 
No, I, I think you covered it, Jen. Um, the only thing I would say is that keep in mind, if petitioner suffers a significant injury, seek medical treatment for that individual. You shouldn't be questioning them, uh, you know, why they're on the stretcher or why they're getting medical treatment. You can follow up with them after the initial. But, um, you know, I mean, I think, it, 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 I, th I think it's pretty obvious that, you know, you should seek the medical treatment for that injured individual uh, and then follow up with regards to those questions. Um, I think you covered a, a good pre-litigation discussion with regards to that. Um, so what do we do then when a, when a claim has been filed with the court? Um, what do you feel? What are the things that we need from our clients right away when a claim has been reported? Okay, we, we get a claim petition, either it comes through our office from a petitioner's counsel who says they recently filed something, or the carrier refers the case over to us for handling, um, and typically all we get is a claim petition. Sometimes it has information in it, sometimes it doesn't. When we get a referral from the carrier with regards to the claim, what we would like in our initial documentation, if possible, not only is the claim petition, because we have to file an immediate answer, we have a certain amount of days to do so, so we need to file an answer. Um, the claim petition that you received may have already been filed or it might be a draft. We need the social security number of the petitioner in order to file that claim petition. Sometimes we'll get CPs from petitioner's counsel or the carrier that's already been filed and the court removes the social security number for safety purposes. If we don't have the social security number, we can't file an answer on that CP. Um, we would like the wage information. We would like any initial treatment records, any witness statements, all the information that Jen talked about, what we uh, we would like from the initial, because you're asking us to do an assessment on that case. You're asking us to provide you with a litigation plan. You're asking us to provide you with a, uh, a defense litigation budget and possibly an exposure analysis based on that initial information. All of our initial responses are going to be preliminary because we really don't know what's going on with the file as of yet or how significant the injuries are. Uh, something that could be minor could wind up being something more significant and something that looks significant in the beginning could wind up being very minor as it as it plays out. Um, as you know, all petitioners are different. Some have significant amounts of complaints that turn out to be nothing. Others are very stoic individuals and don't have very much complaints and you wind up having surgery down the road. So it's, it's initial evaluations are tough to make unless we have as much information as possible. Um, right. In addition, oh, good, Jen. Well, no, and it, it's really important to, to keep in mind that, uh, you know, just be claim, because a claim is filed, we understand that a lot of these claims may not be valid or there may be issues or disputes with regard to the information being put in the claim petition. Um, just because a claim is filed doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to get an award. Um, there could be issues with regard to compatibility, which means whether the accident um, happened or didn't happen. Um, but getting us all the information, especially in a denied claim, if it's denied for a, a number of reasons, it's getting us that information. So if there's a question as to how the accident happened, getting us details about why you're questioning the accident. If it's a medical dispute, it's making sure that you have a doctor addressing that medical dispute, um, not just saying, well, it seems like it would be idiopathic. Well, you know, we all may think we're doctors, but <laughs> in reality, you need a medical opinion to support that, that statement. It's a great defense, but that's a medical opinion. Some of them are legal issues. Some of them are medical issues. So it's determining you know, is the claim compensable? So in the referral, a lot of times, yes, we get the claim petition and that's all that's sent over. It doesn't say this is an accepted accident, this is a denied accident. So it's getting us over that information. 
Um, but one of the one of the big things that um, we see all the time that's really really important and people I don't think understand is uh, sending over that wage information. So we a lot of times we'll say a 26, 26 week wage statement. Um, that's important for a number of reasons. We absolutely understand many times temp isn't paid, but it's not just about temp. Yes, you want to know what the average weekly wage is in the event that temp is paid. You don't want to have to wait until they're being taken out of work for you to then have to ask the employer for that or for the employer to provide it. When you're reporting an injury, that's something you should automatically for New Jersey be providing to your carrier is the 26 week wage information. Um, but many times for permanency purposes, especially if they're a part-time worker or if they have a, a low rate, they ultimately could affect the award. So we they may have what we call to be a capped rate. So for temp, there's a minimum and a maximum, but for permanency, uh, the minimum doesn't apply. So it's really important for you to get that wage information over to us. Um, and Rob, when addressing a compensability component, are there other things that you're looking for or that you think that that's important, um, especially when they're talking about prior injuries or things like that? Again, just because someone has a prior injury doesn't mean they haven't had a new compensable injury, but we do have a right to investigate all claims. Um, that's why as part of our the initial investigation, some of the documentation we ask for, we ask for the ISO uh, claim search report. We like to check that to see if there was any other claims. Not only does that list prior workers' compensation claims, whether with this employer or prior employers, but it also lists personal injury claims slip and falls, motor vehicle accidents, or other claims that this particular petitioner was involved in that could have resulted in some type of injury. Uh, so you'll see in our initial evaluations, we always ask for that particular report. And that's why it's so important that we get that. Um, with regards to that. And also for pre-litigation strategy that um, the carrier wants to have that information because they can look at it and they be able, and if it's pre-litigation, pre-claim petition, pre-hiring an attorney, there's a lot more discovery you can get at that point. So it's the insurance company when they when they're running that ISO search. If they see something that may be a match, um, it's trying to get a, a, a signed release so that they can get the records from the other carrier. But also asking for their PCP information. Sometimes it's doing a medical canvas and trying to get records related to any potential matches because there's a lot of discovery that you may be able to do pre-litigation that we're going to have to ultimately file motions and get into more intense litigation with regard to whether or not we're entitled to that information. Um, whereas if a claim petition hasn't been filed or they haven't retained an attorney, there may be more information that you're entitled to or you're able to get, which really would be helpful um, in the defense. Specifically, when we're talking about, as Robin mentioned, it may not alleviate your responsibility for um, having to provide treatment, but it would help with regard to settlement and a potential doula credit. So well, it, it's really important to do that. Right. And also with regards to whether or not petitioner has got a pre-existing disability, the carrier has the right to provide treatment without prejudice. If we're right. investigating a claim and you think petitioner may have had a compensable injury, but you found out that they had a pre-existing injury, you can still provide that individual with treatment, but you would want to make a specific um, declaration to the petitioner that you're doing so without prejudice while you're investigating that matter. Uh, that gives you the right to, to, to argue later on that the injury, the current complaints are not related to the new slip and fall or, or the accident. Um, and therefore, you, you can terminate whatever treatment you're providing. Uh, it also gives you a good basis um, and, and 
what's the word I'm looking for? How about, um, you know, a good feeling with the court. Um, the court likes to see that the, all parties be an active participant in the litigation. Uh, if you're, uh, if the case is under investigation and you're still providing treatment, the court looks at that kind of favorably for the respondent saying they're actually doing their responsibilities, even though they have a right to, to argue that it might not be uh, a claim that we would normally pick up. Since you're taking those extra steps, the, the, the court does look favorably on some of that information. Now, Rob, does that mean that by providing treatment without prejudice that you've picked up the claim? What, what uh, does that without prejudice mean? I knew you were going to go there. Um, without prejudice means that you have not accepted the claim. Um, under the, the, the case law and the statutes, it, it is not an admission of liability if you provide authorized medical treatment. There's a there's a question as to whether or not if you pay temporary disability, whether that's an admission of liability and acceptance of the claim. There is an actual case out there um, where the carrier actually put petitioner on notice that all benefits were being paid pursuant to um, were being paid without prejudice. And that included uh, the notation with regards to temporary disability. That case was actually determined later on to be resolved via a Section 20 um, and that the court did not uh, take the payment of temp as a, an admission of liability because the, the correspondence was specific and clear that the carrier was only doing so without prejudice. Um, if you don't, if you pay temp without putting petitioner on notice, the courts have accepted that as a compensable issue uh, and then you've accepted compensability. And one of the things that um, there is a case that also talks to the fact of if you're paying without prejudice and there's a third party claim, if ultimately, as Rob had said in that other case, the claim was found to not be compensable, your Section 40 lien rights still would apply to any medical and temp that you pay without prejudice, even if ultimately the claim is found to be not compensable. So it, make sure you still put them you still put the injured employee on notice of your potential Section 40 lien rights, even if you're providing treatment without prejudice. Um, it gives you that opportunity to uh, not have to pay potentially um, a motion fee while you're investigating the claim. The statute is really not clear as to how long you can investigate a claim. And that's really the problem that, that in New Jersey we have. It says, you know, that, that you're allowed reasonable efforts to investigate. Well, is a week reasonable? Is two weeks? Is a month? Uh, and, and so investigation can take time. So you want to sort of wait a little bit of time, but you don't want to wait too long and run the risk of a claim petition being filed or a motion being filed to where you're forced to make a decision. Um, a lot of times it's better for you to provide that treatment without prejudice or potentially pay that temp without prejudice um, in an effort to give you the time you need to investigate the claim. Uh, and it's really important um, to keep that in mind in a lot of these instances. Um, so Jen, earlier, Jen, earlier you you were talking about um, why we get medical records and, and why we get certain documentations and sending out authorizations and seeking family doctor's records and things like that. Now that we've got litigation pending and we filed our answer and we're investigating the claim, um, from a defense perspective, why do we get the medical records? Why do we send out those searches? And what are we entitled to? Well, and that you're only entitled to medical records if you have a basis for it. So many times you can't just go and do a search and ask for the primary care records just because you have a hunch. Um, it's trying to get the authorized treating doctor sometimes to help you out. 
So if there's a possibility where there's degenerative findings and an injured employee is saying that they have no prior complaints, no prior treatment, it, it's getting the, um, the treating doctor sometimes uh, getting them to say, you know, I'd like to look at the primary care records just to make sure it seems like there was more going on here. Um, that would help you. That would give you a basis. The degenerative findings alone, uh, not always, the court will not always allow you to get primary care records just because there's degenerative findings. Um, unless there's something more there, uh, some judges will, some judges won't. It really depends. But the providing of primary care records, sometimes they'll do an, what we call an in-camera review. So if there's a dispute, a lot of times, um, if, if it's really a problem, I'll say, why don't we just do an in-camera review of the PCP records so the judge is sent the records directly and the judge can review them. Um, the reason that that's important is because while you may be responsible for the injury, a lot of times we have low back or knee injuries where there's degenerative findings and they claim that they've never had any uh, prior injury, prior treatment, and it's what we call asymptomatic before the injury. Well, that's something you really want to investigate because an Abdullah credit is really something that would be useful in helping reduce the overall cost of the settlement. All right, um, let me jump so, in for a sec. Wait a second. Yes. I think you should explain what an Abdullah credit is. Um, we keep using the term about credits and things like that. Um, why don't you throw that out just so we make sure everybody understands all the terms we're using? Sure, absolutely. So uh, an Abdullah credit is a credit that the court gives you for pre-existing injuries. Uh, and there, there are different types of credits. So you have a, a prior award from the workers' comp court that is set by the court. So if an injured individual had a knee injury in 2001 and then had another one in 2006, the 2006 claim would get a credit for whatever was awarded in that 2001 injury. That would be an award for a, it would still be called an Abdullah credit, but it would be a set bottom line basis to where your case is going to be. Um, another Abdullah credit could be from a motor vehicle accident or from just an injury at home. They may have injured their uh, knee and had a prior arthroscopy. That amount of the Abdullah credit, um, the Abdullah credit is a credit for prior functional loss, but the amount is negotiable. So when it's previously a workers' comp award, that's set by the court. When it's Abdullah credit for something that occurs at home or a motor vehicle accident, and it's not previously set by the court, that's something you can negotiate. So you're getting that credit for the prior functional loss, um, but you have to prove that there's prior functional loss, and that's the key. Um, just because there's degenerative findings, if they were asymptomatic prior to the injury, you do not get an Abdullah credit because there's no proof of prior functional loss. And that's a lot of times something that's difficult um, to understand and you really feel that you should get one, but the court doesn't allow it because you actually have to show functional loss. And functional loss can be shown in, in a number of ways. So it's not only, you know, treatment, but it's complaints, limitations, things that they weren't able to do. So it, it's investigating them, um, investigating the medicals and trying to see what information you can find out. It's the employer providing information of, you know, they, they were slow, they were complaining of their knee pain, they were limping on occasion before the injury that we noticed. So just because they may not have sought treatment, if you as the employer have evidence or proof um, that they were limited prior to the accident, 
or they complained of that body part prior to the accident, it, it would obviously be helpful and it would be helpful in showing that there was prior functional loss. So one of the things that one of the things we can find with regards to prior functional loss uh, is whether or not petitioner took any leave of absence. Um, right. it, uh, there's a lot of times they have to file documentation with their clients uh, with regards to the leave of absence. It may be medical. It may be their own personal leave of absence for medical. It might be a family medical leave for another family member. But that documentation, which may be contained in the personnel file or with HR, is also relevant with regards to whether or not petitioner had pre-existing injuries for the purposes of this Abdullah credit. Right. The employer should always take a look at the personnel file. And if it's where the carrier or the, uh, the carrier requests it, even if they don't request it, you want to go back as the employer to look through the personnel file to see if, you know, if they took a um, pre-employment physical or if they filled out anything, um, if they had prior incidents or visits, if you have an on-site nurse, or if you had any records with regard to leave, as Rob mentioned. Um, sometimes there's information in the personnel file, sometimes there's not, but always take a look at it and let the, uh, let the carrier know if there's any information there. Um, it's looking at that information. And it, it's a little bit, it, it, it's going through and evaluating what information do we know that might help our defense with regard to this this allegation and it, doing investigation on your own. And lastly, uh, you want to be careful and delicate. You don't want to um, be attacking other employees and, and seeking seeming like you're harassing people. But you want to do um, your due diligence and, and getting the information and, and seeing what information there is, so that the, the that, so that your employees understand that you take these claims seriously, um, both to protect the employee and to protect yourself. Yeah, and also you talked about family doctor's records in an in-camera review. Uh, mm -hmm. Another reason for that in-camera review is, as you know, the family doctor may see that petitioner for a multitude of issues. Um, there may be past family history that, that shouldn't be relevant to the court proceedings. There could be psychiatric issues. There could be other medical conditions that are completely unrelated to this case contained in there that of a sensitive nature. Um, a lot of times petitioner's counsel will object to you getting the family doctor's records because they know or are aware that there might be, um, you know, sensitive information in the family doctor's records and their client doesn't want that to be publicly displayed throughout the court. And that's perfectly understandable. And that's a good basis for the in-camera review. We've used that, that procedure several times with regards to situations like that so that the judge could take a look at the records and say whether or not they need to be redacted whether or not they should be produced at all, um, if there's relevant information that can be gleaned from those records and then provided to defense counsel without petitioner having to go, you know, through the, the whole procedure of, of airing their dirty laundry, for, for lack of a better term. Right. And a, and a carrier needs to keep in mind also that um, a lot of times in New Jersey workman's comp, technically a HIPAA is not required related to a worker's comp case. Um, some providers, medical providers will require it, um, but a lot of times if you're doing these types of investigations with regard to PCP records, many times they'll ask for it. But if a um, carrier is asking for this information, they have to be careful about what information they're turning over to the, to the employer because they have to make sure that that irrelevant information is not contained. So if there's information on, you know, if someone had, uh, has a history of bipolar condition, you know, it may impact their employment situation if the employer wasn't aware of that pre-existing condition 
and now they are, um, subconsciously or not. So preventing that type of information from being passed to the employer um, is really important that you have an obligation because it could put you, it could put the carrier at risk, it could put the employer at risk. So making sure that if you're sending over PCP records that you're somewhat delicate and only providing the records that are related to the incident or to the claim. Um, so as a carrier, you have to keep that in mind. Um, and that's when it's pre-litigation or even as litigation is ongoing. Um, Rob, we talked about a little bit before about the wages and about why it's really important to provide that information. Can, can you go through that and just explain it a little bit more about why the wage information is really important? Okay, well, while we covered the, the earlier part, we need the wage information to, to calculate the, the appropriate temporary disability rate to make sure that petitioner is getting the, the, the proper rate. We're not overpaying or we're not underpaying. Um, petitioner's counsel will almost always request that information. Uh, several, uh, uh, sometimes I should say, not, not several times, but sometimes the petitioner's bar will put a wage information in the claim petition. Um, that's usually based on what petitioner tells them. Oh, I earn $900 a week. That may not necessarily be accurate when you look at the 26-week wage history. Petitioner may have earned $900 last week, but every week before that only earned $400. Um, it all depends on, on the type of work activities that are going on, how many hours were being done. Um, so that's it's really relevant with regards to the temp issue. When we get to the permanency issue, um, if there's a capped rate, there's always an argument that a petitioner's counsel can make for reconstruction. Um, if petitioner is a full-time employee but is earning less than a full-time uh, wage and rate, they can argue that petitioner's limitations are such to the point where the court should reconstruct the wage and rate. Um, it's usually based uh, on the hours worked, um, typically by a petitioner in that particular position. Uh, the statute is kind of ambiguous with regards to all the different ways a wage and rate can be calculated. Um, Jen has a particular what if there's, petition. Well, what if there's a contract um, when an employer, a lot of times when you go in, sometimes they'll say um, uh, that you're being hired and that you're going to be working 40 hours a week, making $10 an hour. Uh, but then the wage, the 26 weeks, is, is the 26 weeks absolute or does the, the contract when, when made at the time of hire? What, which one do you use? When you're looking at the, the statute actually says it's what you were um, being paid with regards to your contract for hire. Um, if you go into a position saying that you're going to be you're going to earn $10 an hour and you're going to work 40 hours and that's what you are hired at, then that's based, That's what the court will assume you calculate your wage and rate for purposes of permanency. With regards to temporary disability, we argued and, and successfully take the position that is based on the actual earnings earned. So it's based, that's why we need the wage information specifically. Petitioner's counsel and Jen has one specifically that argues constantly that it's the, the wage and rate at the time of hire. Whatever petitioner was hired at, that's what they should be paid. Uh, the problem with that argument is, um, from the per petitioner's perspective, is um, what if they earn overtime? What if they earn more than the, 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 the wages hired? Should we only pay what the wages, what they were at time of hire? Our argument is yes. If they're going to present an argument that petitioner was hired to work 40 hours a week and was paid $10 an hour, then their wage should be $400 and their, their rate should be $280. Um, counsel will turn around and say, oh, no, but they work 10 hours of overtime and that's time and a half and you have to calculate that in there. 
for purposes of the tip, sure, but why should we do so for the way for the permanency? It's an ambiguous issue. The courts usually kind of, you know, allow the parties to to, to negotiate a compromise with regards to the wage and rate. Um, I don't think there's been any appellate decision specifically on point with regards to that issue yet. Um, hopefully, you know, if 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 necessary, we'll bring it up. But otherwise, you know, we'd rather negotiate the, the, a compromise on the wage and rate instead of the court forcing our hand and telling us exactly what we have to do in in all situations. Rob, um, what if, you know, when you're receiving authorized treatment, one of the things that a um, employer should always consider is that when you have injured employees um, and they're receiving treatment for a workers' comp case, is there a, and they're given a light duty restriction by the doctor, can you accommodate? And a lot of times um, an, an employer has to evaluate whether or not they can offer accommodated positions. Um, many of our clients do. It actually, we, we strongly recommend it if you can do it. The reason being is um, if someone is back to work and they're working a light duty position, they're going to be more willing to try and get to a, that um, return to work full duty than if they're sitting at home making, making the same or more money doing nothing. So it incentivizes them to get better quicker a lot of times. Um, than it may otherwise. So an employer needs to communicate to the carrier whether or not they can offer a light duty position. And the carrier, when they get the medical records, getting at least the return to work status and communicating that to the employer to be able to determine when they are able to return to work um, or what the restrictions are. But one of the things, Rob, can you talk a little about, um, you know, New New Jersey does not have what we call uh, partial wages. So we we don't have, it's not part of the statute, um, but a lot of times we have a, where an employer can say, well, I can bring them back two hours a day and they'll be making minimum wage instead of the $20 an hour they used to make. So does New Jersey have a payment of partial wages or or what is a carrier supposed to do in that instance? Uh, there's nothing in the statute, Jen, that talks about partial wages. There's nothing. We, we refer to that as partial temp. Um, if a petitioner has returned back to work in a light duty capacity and is making less than what they made before, there is a case that was decided um, a few years ago now. It's called SOTO, S-O-T-O. Um, it is a judge level decision. Um, but the court finally uh, was asked to address this issue. Um in this particular case, petitioner was by the authorized treating physician was returned back to work light duty, but was put on a graduated return, two hours uh, a day for the first two weeks, and then gradually up to four hours and then six hours until he was able to return back to work in an eight-hour capacity, which was his normal job duties. Once he was returned back to work light duty, uh, even though he was only working two hours a day, uh, his temporary disability was stopped. Petitioner was returned back to light duty. No temp was owed. The problem was petitioner was earning less than his temporary disability rate. Uh, I don't remember the exact figures uh, with regards to how much less, but it was a couple hundred dollars less a week um, that he was earning. And the court deemed that not to be fair. Um, This is a court of equity. uh, So the courts will look at what's fair and reasonable. In that particular decision, the court said, if you return petitioner back to work light duty, he has to or she has to at least make what they would have earned on temporary disability. And when we're talking about what they earned, you it's not the gross amount you would pay them. It's, 
excuse me, it would be the um, the net amount that you pay the petitioner during that week has to equal or be greater than the temporary disability rate. If it is, then petitioner isn't owed any additional money. If it's not, the courts have said that the, the carrier should be paying the difference. So, Rob, this is a judge level decision. It's not statutorily required. So why should an employer or a carrier consider doing this? While it's not binding on all the other judges, we've been advised through the grapevine of the different judges that they all agree with this finding. Uh, this is a decision that someone has been waiting to make for many, many, many years. Um, no one really ever argued this issue to the point where they forced the court to make that decision until the Soto case. Um, now that the decision's on the on the table, so to speak, uh, all the judges are following this this guideline that was done by another judge. While again, it's it's only binding in that particular court, uh, and it's not binding on the other judges. Um, we have been informed that that this is a decision that was in a long time coming, and and all the judges are going to follow it. And so one of the things that I've always suggested, if you have an employee where this is the situation, you can talk to them. Um, if they're represented, you obviously can't talk to the injured employee directly. But if there's not a pending claim petition, um, this may be something that forces an injured employee to find an attorney. So trying to say to them, you know what, we understand, and talking to them and compromising it, maybe not paying the full difference between the net and, and their temporary disability rate, but saying, okay, we understand, um, and, and potentially either trying to get them a position or hours that will get them up to their temporary, or it's trying to offer a compromise to something less than what the full amount you might offer. Um, but if there's litigation pending, every single attorney will file a motion with the court for the difference between the temporary disability benefits and what they're making. And every single one of the judges will find in their favor. Um, most of the time when these have been filed, uh, an agreement has been made and an order is entered. And the problem is when an order is entered, the attorney could get up to 20% on a fee on whatever's paid. So we all know that the court's going to find that at least the difference between the temperate and the wages is something that they're going to be awarded. So knowing that it's better for us to agree or to concede to pay um, that amount because you're going to then pay an attorney fee on top of that. Um, what would be even better is if you recognize that this is a situation, we understand if you're a union and this is the only job and this is what you're, you have to offer. But if you're not a union, trying to find them at least the hours or a position where they'll be paid at least their minimum, uh, their temporary disability rate. So you don't have the situation. Um, but it's re really, really important to keep in mind um, that while this is not statutorial, um, this is something that the court is going to find in favor of the petitioner. And you don't want to pay the 20, up to the 20% fee for no reason on top of that. Yeah, um, Jen, you, Jen, you mentioned something with regards to this partial temp about, you know, working light duty and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. When, uh, let's say we have a, a, a compensable injury, petitioner files a claim, even though they, they don't necessarily have to, as they're getting all the benefits that are required, they're getting temporary disability, they're getting authorized treatment. At this point, um, why do we as defense counsel want to see the treatment records as we go along? Why is it important for us to be able to keep track of that stuff? Well, I, 
think for us, there's a lot of times where there's things that something significant that we may see. So there may be a new incident that's mentioned. There may be something mentioned about pre-existing medical that that might be a um, reason for us to be able to investigate additional information. Um, there may be something that they say that we may say to you, you know, you should consider surveillance or you should consider a social media search. Um, but there could also be something in the medicals. You know, we have a lot of these claims where the treatment has been the same and they're receiving what we call palliative treatment. And so um, when you have an injured employee who's been treating for, for years and it's the same treatment, they're getting periodic injections or if it's a site claim or they're getting ongoing um, therapy or they're on the same medications, um, many times you can ask the doctor if the treatment is palliative or curative. And if the treatment is considered to be um, palliative and not curative, uh, you then can move on towards PERM. You can terminate temporary disability benefits because you're only responsible for providing temporary disability benefits while an injured employee is receiving curative treatment. Now, it doesn't mean that you can cut off treatment. <laughs> that, that's the one key. Yeah, I mean, an injured employee is entitled to the treatment that's necessary to keep them at the palliative level. And if you cut off treatment, it's not going to be palliative anymore. It's going to become curative. So, you know, just because a claim is settled, just because temporary disability benefits are done, doesn't mean your responsibility with regarding providing medical treatment goes away. So keep that in mind. But, you know, it's really, it, it, there are things that when we review the records that we may see that you may not be aware of, um, that we may see a legal strategy to get you closer towards closing the claim and, and closing your, your responsibility with regard to indemnity for, for temporary disability benefits. Um, also, it doesn't. It allows the carrier, if they get the records on a timely basis and follow up with the doctors on a timely basis, if the doctor does throw in that light duty recommendation, then they have the opportunity at that point to follow right up with the carrier or the client to see if that light duty can be um, accommodated, and then petitioner can be notified. If if right. we're not seeking the medical records, we meaning the carrier uh, or defense counsel for months after the treatment has already been ongoing, we don't know if there's been any change in the situation by the authorized treating physician. Um, that's why uh, another issue to, to make sure that we follow up timely with the carrier as defense counsel and the carrier with the, the treating physician um, is so that we can keep on top of the, the, the situation to, to reduce the potential exposure with regards to temporary disability, or, or like Jen said, to find out if there was some type of intervening event. We've seen in multiple records that petitioner goes to the doctor and says over the weekend they were doing X, Y, and Z and suffered a new injury or may have suffered a new injury. We would want to investigate that fully to see what's going on because maybe that's an intervening event. Intervening events are hard to argue and hard to prove, but if we have information and can get documentation with regards to that, we may be able to stop our benefits at that point because of an intervening event. Um, but we wouldn't know that un uh, if, unless we have the records. You also, it also will help confirm that the injured employee is being compliant. So you want to, a lot of times they may be scheduling medical treatment. Sometimes the carrier may be scheduling medical treatment, but you want to make sure that the treatment is ongoing, that they're complying with the treatment, especially if you're paying temporary disability benefits. And an injured employee, the reason that they're getting temp is because that's a replacement for their wages. So they must go to all doctor's appointments, therapy appointments, everything. They can't give you excuses. Oh, well, I can't do this because I have 
um, to pick up my daughter from school or because I have, or I have to take care of my mother or that's not permissible. They have to treat reasonable and they have to attend the appointments. Otherwise it puts their temporary disability benefits at risk. The same, if they say that they have a week of vacation scheduled, well, sorry, but realistically, they're not supposed to be going on vacation if they're treating for a a workers' compensation accident. You technically can tell them, especially it depends on if the doctor feels that the vacation is going to impact the recovery. So if you have an injured employee, a great example um, is if they have a foot injury and they're planning on going to Disney World. Well, you know, if they're going to Disney World, I'm sure they're going to be walking and the walking is not going to help that foot injury. So it's making sure that they understand that if they go on that vacation, that that could put their benefits at risk. Um, So ultimately the decision is the injured employees, but it's communicating with them that if they go on vacation, the week that they're on vacation, temporary disability benefits won't be paid. Um, It's also letting them know that if there's a, um, if there's a change in their condition, that could affect their benefits. Um, A lot of times, even if an injured employee um, does something detrimental that affects their recovery, the courts still find that you're responsible for it. But you want to do everything you can to prevent those types of situations from occurring. So if you don't tell them in advance that their benefits are at risk, um, they'll go. If you tell them their benefits may be at risk, they may think twice about going, and that's something that would help you. If they're going to miss their therapy appointments, if they're going to miss their pain management appointments, if there's going to be an issue with them um, being compliant with treatment, it's definitely something you want to know, and it's something you want to make sure that the doctors are aware of and asking how that's going to impact them. Jen, uh, you know, we said litigation has now proceeded all the way through discovery. Uh, Petitioners finally got a maximum medical improvement determination, something we refer to as MMI, Um, whether it be authorized or unauthorized. What are we looking for now? Where are we going with the case at this point? Uh, Well, you're going to go to permanency evaluations. And so, you know, the key is finding a good permanency evaluator who can address permanent disability. Um, What, when we talk about permanent disability, Rob, what exactly does that mean? Okay. You know what? With, with permanency, we can have three different types of permanent disability uh, issues. Orthopedic, and, and everybody pretty much understands that one. That's a simple one. You have a broken bone. You've had surgery. You've had some type of internal der, uh, uh, derangement of a joint or a bone or a ligament or a tendon, uh, something that causes you further issues going down the road. Um, that's a pretty easy one. The other ones uh, that that come up for permanency are neurologic. Um, you may have had a crush injury to your hand or your foot. Um, you may have had uh, significant surgery and now have a, a numbness in, in that particular body part. Uh, you might have a neurologic issue with regards to a head injury. Um, you might have cognitive issues. You might have um, speech alteration. You might have, we had one case where a petitioner lost her sense of smell as a result of a head injury. Um, so there are issues that, that could come as a result of a neurologic defect as a result of the, uh, a, a traumatic injury. The, the third type of injury, which is much more difficult to prove, is a psychiatric injury. Um, 
You may have uh, two different types of psychiatric injuries or one, uh, a chronic pain situation that comes about, uh, comes about as a result of your uh, traumatic injury, or you might have a direct psychiatric disability because of a traumatic event. Um, petitioner was held up and had a gun stuck in their face uh, during their employment uh, and now has difficulty being in public or going out to stores. Um, while there was no physical injury, the petitioner was never touched, um, was, was not injured physically, uh, there could be serious psychological issues with regards to that. Every petitioner is different. Some petitioners might get a, a few weeks of therapy, bounce right back and have no residual issues. Some petitioners could be significantly affected by that for the remainder of their life. So picking the right expert and, and knowing the, the, the injuries of the petitioner by reviewing the medical records as well as pre-existing issues um, helps determine which particular um, expert you have. Um, I didn't. I didn't cover pulmonary. There's also pulmonary disabilities. Uh, they could be from um, either an, an occupational exposure or a specific traumatic event that results in a pulmonary injury uh, that results in a disability. So there, there, there is a. There, there might be another couple little incidentals. Uh, you know, hearing experts, um, uh, other kinds of experts that we might not particularly have picked, but the, the three main ones are are orthopedic, neurologic, and psychiatric. Right. And, and Rob, um, if someone lives out of state, I know we talk about the for medical treatment, if they live out of state, um, you do have to provide medical treatment in the state in which they're in. But is that the same for a permanency evaluation? Well, my argument to that is no. Um, petitioner has an obligation to pursue their claim here in New Jersey if this is where they filed it. Um, while we have an obligation and a responsibility to defend that case, they also, also have a responsibility to prosecute that claim. If they're choosing not to return back to the state to have their evaluation, you can file a motion to dismiss for lack of prosecution. Um, the motion to dismiss for lack of prosecution can be filed for a multitude of reasons, uh, whether they be discovery-related, uh, timely responses, or petitioner's failure to attend reasonable treatment, um, or an abandonment issue with regards to treatment. But again, um, petitioner has an obligation to come back to New Jersey to attend that permanency evaluation. There is a, dis, uh, a current dispute in the workers' compensation court that if you require the petitioner to come back, do you have to provide them transportation? Do you have to provide them lodging if they can't provide it for themselves? What is the responsibility of the respondent? Uh, we take the position that they were the ones who filed the claim. If they want to prosecute their claim, they have to come back and attend our examination. Whether they drive, fly, take the train or a bus, uh, whether they stay with friends or family or rent a hotel on their own, that's their responsibility. Now, the difference, though, is that, you know, I, I just had one where uh, a person was flying in and so that they don't have to miss a lot of work. Um, the, the, the injured employee's attorney had asked for the appointment to either be on a Monday or Friday. That's a reasonable request. And having it um, in, in, a, in either a certain location um, or a certain time of day. So, it, you know, if they need an afternoon appointment compared to a morning appointment, um, since you're not paying temporary disability benefits, those types of requests are, are considered to be reasonable. They have to attend and you get a choice to pick your own doctor. But a court is going to feel that if an injured employee is saying, I, I need an appointment on a Monday, that's not an unreasonable request. So it's the it's carrier, the employer, the attorney's responsibility to try and accommodate those types of requests. But you really and want to make sure that you well, pick the right doctor 
um, for these exams uh, because you know there there are certain situations we're not going to get into it today. Certain doctors are more likely to find uh, no permanency or regardless of cause compared to certain others. There are certain doctors who you do not want to use a treating doctor for a permanency evaluation. Um, I just had a case where a carrier did that. The, the vendor set up an appointment with a doctor who's normally a treating doctor. He gave an absurd estimate because he doesn't normally do permanency evaluations. And he used a, a standard of review to find the estimate that is not what is done in workers' comp. And so that it's something to keep in mind that making sure that you have an expert that actually understands the standard of review, that understands for, for permanency, what does an injured employee have to prove? Um, again, it's that functional loss. What does functional loss mean? Functional loss can mean, um, you know, limitations at work, but also limitations at home. So uh, an injured employee may work themselves um, full duty, um, push themselves to the limit, and then when they get home, they're useless for the rest of the day. Um, so just because they're working the full duty doesn't necessarily mean that they're, that there's no functional loss. So you have to keep in mind that getting that right evaluator and, and understanding that it's a combination of factors that the court considers. And also, you know, just to make that point, it's actually written into our statute that um, it, even though a petitioner may have suffered a work-related injury and returns back to work in that same job duty and capacity, that does not mean they're not entitled to some permanency with regards to that injury. Um, so we, we do have to take that in consideration because the court doesn't only look at what functional loss do they have with work, but it has to do with their every day-to-day -day lifestyle and life activities. Um, so most part, um, we've covered from, from A to Z. Right. And I, we understand that this is not inclusive of all issues. Um, our office does a number of these podcasts or webinars so we'd like you to join us for the next episode or for, feel free to listen to any past episodes. You can go to www.wglaw.com um, and take a look. Uh, we also, if there's any topics that you would like us to discuss in the future, feel free, uh, email us. Uh, you can email myself, Rob, or, or anyone um, and, and just let us know. We'd be more than happy to discuss any topics that are of interest um, to you whether it be uh, the carrier, the employer, or, or anyone, um, if there's a topic, just let us know. But, you know, thank you for joining us. And um, we're looking forward to talking with you in the future. Jen, thanks a lot. We'll talk thanks, to you soon. Rob. Thank you for listening to Workers' Compensation Academy, presented by Weber Gallagher. We hope you join us next time to learn more about managing risk to improve your bottom line. Until then, please visit us at wglaw.com.